Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Three Point Landing. I'm your host, Matthew. My other host, Misha. <laughs> and we're happy. We're going to be happy to talk about comic books. Woo! Uh, yeah, so I have been cleaning up the library a little bit. As you can see behind me. Is it library? Do you say library or library? I, did, I don't know what I said. Well, I, I mean library. Library. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've heard it said both ways. Some people say library. Some people say library. Well, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. You're not going to burst into song, are you? So, how you doing? I mean, it's... Uh, well, like I said, um, I'm trying to catch up with all the unattended chores. You know, uh, laundry chair needs to become chair again. <laughs> uh, okay. And as, a, as, you know, as part of that process, I've been going through the library and trying to dust off as many books as I can. And lo and behold, I rediscover my comic book collection. I've kind of fallen behind on comics lately, but uh, <laughs> led me to reminiscing on some of my favorite titles. Physical artifacts of a bygone age. Yeah. I, I'm sure it surprises you that I actually do have physical books, considering how much of the other stuff I consume is entirely digital. And that's only because I am too much of a you know Luddite to pick up a uh, a tablet or a smartphone sufficient for reading. So I still depend on you know physical books for my printed matter, for my written for my written stuff. You know it's it's funny that you say that because admittedly, look, don't get me wrong. I I still buy I still mm-hmm. buy comic books. I still buy graphic novels and all that. But I cannot deny the convenience that comes with packing your entire collection into your tablet for for a long trip. Seriously, oh, I, mean, yeah, I cannot sure. do it. On, I can't, but I, but it has to be like a tablet that's a decent size because I hate having oh. to zoom in just to read things. That's why I could never read it on a phone. I could never read a book on a on a on a phone. Man, you got me. You just like those words you said, packing into a bag, like just triggered a flashback for me because I still remember because I used to study in uh, <laughs> when I was in college. I used to study in Marikina, and I lived okay. in Parniake. So for those of you, are on you podcast, serious? Who don't know how you made that trip. Yep, every day. Every day? What was it, a five-hour drive? Uh, it would be about four hours, three to four hours in total, uh, both ways. Remember, what? people think it's very far, but if you use the train, all right, here I am getting now into the details of our public transportation system <laughs> since <laughs> 2005. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, it, it still kind of worked back then. Yeah, so yeah, and, it would, it would, and you, the train would cut off my trip from... Cabao all the way to Magallanes. So what would right, happen? Right. Was, you know, it was really just a trip from Parniac to Magallanes, and then from Cabao to to Marikina, and the okay, rest it's is not just so a bad. train ride. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's not so, so bad. At least you're yeah. moving all the time. I mean, you weren't stuck. Yeah, in, you know, traffic it was. A, it was a, it's a de- it's a delicate combination that managed to make it you know less far than than it could have been if I was say in Eastwood. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Anyway. Which is where but my yeah. store's at, Comic Odyssey Eastwood. Please visit us. I need I need money. But <laughs> if and when we open after this pandemic, that is. But seriously, okay. Now it's funny you should mention Marikina because I lived there when I was a kid, and I used to go to school. Uh, I I would leave Marikina in the morning. I would head off to school in Katipunan, and that was where I encountered my first comic book store. 
And that oh. was that was Phil Bars, which is still around. It's still around. It's not entirely the same store anymore, but it's still around. And I still have fantastic memories of that old store in Katipunan because it was like this magical place. Okay. I mean, Fine, I, I'm I'm with Comic Odyssey now, right? But you know, I have to be up front. I'm I'm gonna be up front, okay? I'm gonna be up front. And some of my favorite memories were just being able to convince my father to bring me and my brother to that comic book store. And you <laughs> couldn't miss it because they had an inflatable life-size Spider-Man in the window. So when you drove past it, it was like, you know, Spider-Man was like welcoming you. To, you know, why aren't you coming in? Come in. Your friendly neighborhood wall crawler is asking you to come to the store. Why are you ignoring me? Why are you going to school? Buy some comics. It was amazing. I have two things to say to that. Number one, that <laughs> Spider-Man was a hardcore hustle man. I swear to God. <laughs> he sounds even worse than Stan Lee. Buy our comics. <laughs> True believer. And Excelsior. This is like, we're talking like early to mid 90s. Am I right? Yes, yes, it was. Uh, good, because that means when you say there's an inflatable Spider-Man, I'm a little worried that it is good. Like, if, if you were talking about in the year It wasn't that kind of an onwards, inflatable doll. Well, no, I wasn't even thinking about inflatable doll. I was thinking about, have you seen those on the internet where people have like Spider-Man balloons that are inflatable, but then there's like a little penis where the, where the you know, where the... the, the where the... Right, where the string connects to the balloon. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has an un, un, unintentional balloon boner. It's an unintentional penis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I think back in two thousand, back in nineteen ninety six, balloons were wholesome. What the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> but you know, I mean, it was such a different world back then, because there yeah. was no internet, there's no social media. And the yeah. only way to get caught up on these comic books, if not the actual the books themselves, were to to like the these, I mean, yeah. I mean, even if you couldn't afford to buy anything, you know, you would go just to look. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, actually, I wanted to finish my flashback there. Uh, oh, I'm which sorry. Is that for, yeah, no, it's okay. But I'm I'm happy with where we are talking about like twenty the late twentieth century of comic books and something. <laughs> But like, I just want to say that comic books really helped me get me through that long commute because in those three hours, I would actually physically pack comic books into my bag and be all like, all right, time to make my, you know, my reading list and devour them all from one end of the MRT to the other. So yeah, it's like, I just realized maybe why one of the reasons why I slowed down reading comics was I stopped commuting. <laughs> But anyway, so um, we, 20th century, back then, you were talking about how we, how we used to uh, have to go to the comic book store, how we didn't have social media, you know, the ways, you know, and hanging out at the comic book store, I think really like one of the formative experiences for our generation. Because, you know, um, without the internet, we sort of like had to have a geographical relationship with the things we love. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. If you, were, if you were big into into comics, you just window shop. You just sat there. You just hung out with the comic store owner, you know, or the or your fellow comic book readers, and just like talk shit. You know, sometimes some people you know, like bring up the the age old, you know, which superhero can beat up which superhero kind of argument. The the, the funny thing is, right? The funny thing is, like now that people just take now people can just take it for granted. That they can hang out, they can virtually hang out, they can look up, they can chat, they can talk to anybody of similar interests. 
back then, it was the people you ran into at your local comic book store, you know? It was, mm-hmm. Or it was people who, who ran the store sometimes. Because yeah. I, I, I can tell you, I mean, fine. I mean, we did, we, we did um, read comics in school. I mean, you know, we didn't get away with it. But mm-hmm. it wasn't the mainstream. I mean, these characters, this, these universes were not as mainstream as they are now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, th- the funny thing about uh, superhero culture and comic book culture is that while it was, it's been omnipresent for the entirety of a century, um, its position in the, in the cultural mainstream has gone up and down. Like, right. you know, during the, during the 40s all the way up to the 70s, it was definitely um, more mainstream because it was cheaper. Uh, the direct market didn't exist yet. That's um, true. Storylines. You know, and it wasn't until like the 80s or 90s, I believe, that inflation and rising paper costs and, you know, the way the direct market sort of like altered the landscape <clears throat> of the comic book marketplace, sometimes to its detriment, right. which we're not really going to get into this episode, you know, really like inflated the price of comics and uh, popular media um, sort of like gave us spectacle. Like think about the fact that the 80s and the 90s was the rise of the modern American blockbuster. So you had your Indiana Jones Star Wars and, and, your, right. and even your, your action movies like Lethal Weapon. These movies gave us pure visual spectacle that comics had previously been the exclusive home to before. I think that's valid. And also, yeah. I think that a lot of that is also somewhat responsible for the death of even the local comics industry because... Here in the Philippines, you know, we had a thriving comic book industry uh, with any number of genres. Like you name it, there was a book out there, and yeah. you could you could rent comics if you couldn't afford them from your neighborhood store, your your corner Saudi Saudi store. You know, you could just rent the comics if you couldn't afford to buy them outright. And then mm. they would do serialized stories. They would do, they would do standalones. They would, they they had religious comics. They had political satire, commentary, slapstick, superheroes, sex, violence, romance. Yeah. You name it. There was everything. And yeah, I'm not, an, I'm not an expert in the territory, but I I am very aware of the fact that there was a time in like six, I think sixties all the way up to eighties in the Philippines that. The printed medium was really a cheaper way for <clears> artists <throat> to express themselves and find ways to tell pulpy, schlocky stories that was denied to them on, on TV and radio. Uh, and that's why you had you know, many masters of, of comics art emerge during that period. Right, until you know, a whole bunch of them left to go to yeah, find their fortunes some somewhere else. Or some of them just um, either just stayed and, you know, they became too poor or too old to, to keep up the work. And um, what you're saying about popular entertainment supplanting comic books as the medium of choice, I think that's, that's true. But it's also what drew them away from Philippine comics and sent them towards the direction of American ones. Because think about it, like in... In the early 90s that I was talking about, I mean, this is when X-Men the Animated Series came out. Batman the Animated Series introduced these characters to an entirely new generation that might not necessarily have been familiar with the comics at all. And they were discovering them for the first time. So all the more, especially since these shows were being shown on free TV here in the Philippines, all the more the local stuff just wouldn't 
keep up. I mean, it just wouldn't measure up if that's what you were going to be judging it against. Um, you know, that's, that's absolutely because I, I, true. I understand the quality had gone down um, by a great deal by this point. So the local books mm. just couldn't keep up anymore. Mm. You mean like the printing and the quality of the, of the production? Maybe even the storytelling. Because again, I a see. lot of the people who were good at it had moved on to gre- greener pastures or just given up the game completely because it just was not worth their while anymore. Mm, I see, I see. But for me, I, I first got into comic books. Um, it wasn't through that comic book store. It happened um, actually years earlier when a family friend, I don't know, I think their kid had grown out of comic books or something. I, I, I really don't know what that feels like. Um, he just basically gave us a whole bunch of comic books, my brother and I. Just a whole mess of books. And I had no idea how they fit together. I had no idea about shared universes or crossovers or, you know. But I fell in love with each and every single one of those books. And one of the first one, and one of the ones that I will, it had Secret Wars, number two and number 11, which, you know, (laughs) is a very, very odd. Those are very odd starting points. But I just, fell in love with these fantastical characters teaming up to fight Dr. Doom. I had no idea about their backstories. I didn't know where they came from. I didn't know what was happening in any of their titles. I knew who Spider-Man was, but that was about it. But that was my first exposure to people like Professor Xavier and Wolverine and Cyclops and, you know, James Rhodes as Iron Man. <laughs> and of course, the, the wonder of Dr. Doom. <laughs> You said something about how animated shows and television like really introduced these characters to uh, to our generation or the generations younger, and I think you're absolutely uh, right about that because I now have this dim memory of thinking about characters like Batman and Superman, and you know we take for granted that these are enduring nerd icons that everybody right. You know, sort of like just enjoys across across ages and demographics. Uh, mm-hmm. But back when I was a kid, you know, Batman wasn't cool. He was considered your dad's super, your dad's favorite superhero. He was considered your dad's like sort of like childhood like you know father, right? Right. right? Like I remember finding like you know a stash of Superman comics and Batman comics in my dad's room. You know, and I was like, you know, who are these cornballs, really? You know, I was always a um, you know, I was always a, a Marvel kid and getting back to the whole TV as a, as a portal. So for me, I discovered the characters through television, like the old 1982 or was it 1984 Spider-Man series. You know, I love uh, that show. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, this is even before he became Spider-Man and his amazing friends with That's Firestar right. and Iceman. That's right. Um, yeah, I love that actor. uh, uh who plays Peter Parker? I'm not. I don't recall precisely his name. But anyway, I don't know, but that's uh, what Peter Parker sounds like in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember when I was in below grade one, like was that junior prep or senior prep? I don't know what the ranks are called these days. Um, <laughs> okay. And when you were a rugrat, they were asking us to write an essay. You know, keep in mind I'm six years old here. Okay. You were and asked to write asked a, me, an essay at six years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by essay, they mean like, you know, composition. They mean like, you know, it's probably like a hundred words or something. And I said like, you know, oh, my favorite. They said my favorite, you know, write about your favorite superhero or something or favorite hero. And I, I wrote about Spider-Man. And I remember okay? people like laughed at me and didn't believe me because 
they didn't know that Spider-Man existed. They thought I made him up. And Are you serious? There was, yeah, let me get that. And there was a Spider-Woman animated series that was airing at the time. So they thought I meant Spider-Woman. <laughs> what the actual hell? But for the record, yeah, because- that, that, that Spider-Woman show is pretty bad. <laughs> it was made only to, to, I think, for Marvel to secure to ensure that they had the rights to the Spider Woman name in case anybody decides to make a woman knockoff of Spider Man. But yeah, like you know, that was airing at a time when RPN Nine, I believe, and they had um, <laughs> taken the Spider Man TV show out of rotation. So right, right. Know, so basically, I, my, you know, the, the, the school gaslit me and say and said like, you know, what are you talking about? This guy doesn't exist. <laughs> you know what I then can't I had, forget. Then I, had a, then, I had a, then I had a Spider-Man birthday cake the following year on my birthday. And they're like, okay, well, I guess this must be real since clearly Goldilocks or Jonies or whatever made a, a cake about it. <laughs> no, but that, that's legitimately a thing. Do you remember like when you were a kid, what character you had your birthday cake, you had on your birthday cake, you know, that, that set your social status. <laughs> Whether it was figures on the cake or the icing was used to draw something familiar, you know, might have been what the kind o- of cake you had in your birthday party was a big deal. Might, might have been the only time I got to have a character on my, on my, on my birthday cake for the record. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, that old Spider Man mm. show, I will never forget that <laughs> that was the first time that I knew Wolverine could be Australian because for some reason the producers thought that a Canadian accent. Sounded exactly like an Australian. I think they were worried that Canadians sound too much like Americans, except with a few pronunciation quirks. What are you talking about? So he would, <laughs> so that they would, so that Wolverine would not sound ethnically distinct enough from the rest of the X-Men. But really, nobody has a problem with him just sounding American, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Or American, where with a little Australian slipping through. In the case of Hugh Jackman, yeah. <laughs> but well, I call it the. The 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 male the male uh, the Australian British uh, American accent consists entirely of gritting your teeth, as popularized by Clive Owen, who just goes exactly what I want to say. The thing about Clive Owen, he does the American accent the way that uh, that Hugh Laurie does. He speaks slowly and from the back of your throat. That's American. You draw out your (laughs) syllables. You draw out your and and nobody will question it. We need to do an entire episode about actors who pretend to be a different different who do accents. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, um okay, yeah, a little sorry. bit of tangent tangent there. <laughs> no, but okay. The thing is, what okay? You remember how I said that to meet like-minded people or to even to even be able to discuss comic books, right? You had to hang out at the store. Yeah, or yeah. you find the weird kid in school who actually read these things and could explain them mm-hmm. to you. Another thing that helped the popularity of these characters explode at the time was we had these trading cards. Oh, Jesus Christ. Take me <laughs> back to 1991. <laughs> Dude, I love those Marvel trading cards, those Marvel Universe cards where they, they would have like the character's bio on the back and above that there's his specs. How strong he was, how fast he was, could he heal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> it was the it was the first three series, the only ones that mattered, were produced by Impel and Skybox, I believe. Yes, uh, the, yes, the they were card companies. And um, series one did not have any stats, but it had biodata, uh, right? And a, but it also had like a line of. I think it had a line of trivia at the end too. Yeah, a line of trivia and a cheesy 
a cheesy white scroll that indicate a title of the card on the front, on the front facing, you know, art section of the card. Series yeah, they had like, a, they had like a, a border, like a frame around them, right? Yeah. Series two was interesting because um, it had this geometric uh, pastel frame on the on the left on the <laughs> around the card on the front, and almost all the art, almost but not all, almost all the art was being done by Art Adams, who was considered as somewhat of a pre Jim Lee star at the time. Right. Uh, and then yeah, Arthur Adams who co-created yeah, and then. And they had the seven bar. They had a seven bar system of of of, of stats. I believe strength, intelligence. Right. They all ranked up to seven. It was and like then, a line graph, a bar graph. Yeah, and then series three went a little extra. Series I love issue, series uh, three. That is my yeah, jam. The, which had the which had the the backgrounds were all you know cosmic galaxies stuff. You know, like you can see the nebula and all that stuff, the, the star systems in the background with the characters emerging from a piece of art within the cosmos. Uh, and the and cool on the thing back, was, the, the power if you put them were, together, you could form that whole galaxy. Exactly. Nine they cards formed, <laughs> formed a, whole, a whole portrait. Yeah, yeah. And the back used like these laser lines, these multicolored lasers to represent the stats. I, and I love more importantly, that, sorry. the introduction of a quote. <laughs> right. That's 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 exactly why I know stuff like you know that I'm the best there is at what I do. Though what I do isn't very yeah. nice. So that's Wolverine right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like I, my my brother and I just randomly spout the quotes from those cards to each other. <laughs> you know, as not as random as non sequiturs to each other. But you know, like, until you now, know, until now, we we say like you know driving, you know driving in Los Angeles is easy. If you've got ionic powers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. That's Wonder Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Wonder Man. <laughs> stupid. It makes no fucking sense. But we still say it all the time. <laughs> Holy crap. That's Simon. What's his face? Simon. Oh, God. <laughs> Should have been, oh, been Bruce Gamble. Bruce Gamble. And, here, as, as and here's Man. something that I don't know if... I don't know if kids in other countries did this. But we would actually... Play each other for those cards. Oh God, gambling! Are we talking? Are we talking about gambling? No, now? I'm talking, talking about, about decks. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> it's gambling. It's not gambling. It's a do, game I, of. It's a game of skill. Okay, as a China man, as a China man, I object <laughs> to the idea of, of putting my putting the, my expensive trading cards on the line and wagering them against another in a contest in which I could possibly use my, lose my trading card. That's I, I, why you I had to have, know how to I toss them properly. I, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. For <laughs> it's anyone a risky not- investment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a risky investment. It is not. Basically, you take the cards, like one from everybody, you toss them depending how they land. You know, that depends who wins. Whoever wins gets everybody's cards. And it was awesome. <laughs> And I would win so many cards. And then we'd have to have rules. Ah, somebody, this, Some this people is, would buy bootleg cards from this stall across the street from the school. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is why you approve of this, of this system. Because you won. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. But now that I think about it, yeah, that, that sounds kind of plausible, maybe. Yeah. But again, the, uh, and the thing is, these cards were so freaking popular that at some point, everybody had to have cards. Like G.I. Joe got cards. The Ninja Turtles got cards. The X-Men got their own set because they were so popular being drawn by Jim Lee, you know? 
DC made their own equivalent of cards, sometime parallel to the Marvel trading cards, and boy, did they look like fucking garbage. <laughs> they did. I had some from the Death of Superman set. <laughs> oh God, maybe not. I still have some Gen Thirteen trading cards upstairs, by the way. <laughs> I think they're worth about like two cents at this point. <laughs> but um, speaking of the Death of Superman, I mean, I mean, wait, wait, sorry, just just to wrap up the cards thing. I love those things. I mean, that's clear, but. What I really liked about them was that for a lot of us, those were our introductions to the characters. We would know yeah. everything we needed to know about them just from reading the back. You know how fast the guy was. You know how strong he was. You knew yeah. what issue he first appeared in. You knew his origin yeah. story. You even had a snappy quote. So by the time yeah. you ran into them into the comics, you felt like an expert. Oh, I know that guy. You know, it, yeah. was, and it, it was great. In and some cases, they would, be used, they would be used as marketing also. Like, some of the newer comic book imprints, because this is the 90s and everybody was starting their own comic book imprints. Like, Im- not just Image, but, you know, there would be lots of other, like, startup comic book companies trying to get in right, and all right. the action. And right. I remember one of my favorite comic book imprints at the time, my favorite was uh, Ultraverse, which was published under Malibu. And I could go on to the Ultra, go and talk about the Ultraverse for a long while, but I'll save that for a future discussion, if ever. But Your cartoon what, uh, was terrible. It was terrible. But uh, what amused me about it is that they had a trading card series just like Marvel because after all, if you want the validity and legitimacy of a mainstream superhero company, they got to have a trading card series. And the trading sure. card series they did uh, featured all the characters uh, as it should. And they had the stats. And the stats would say strength, durability, whatever, energy projection, just like the Marvel ones. And then they had one that said cool factor. And I noticed when you looked at all 200 cards... All the, everybody had the max cool factor. <laughs> Not much of a contest, Nobody, was it? <laughs> uh, so, 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 it was a stat that was just really, that was just bullshit, you know, self congratulatory <laughs> promotion saying every card here, every character in the Ultraverse has a cool factor of seven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what garbage. Which, by the way, uh, for those of you in podcast TV land, seven is the, apparently the highest number in all trading card rating systems. So I think in the future, we should consider rating movies and video games this way. No more five stars or 10 out of 10. It's seven. You know what's interesting though? You remember how I said that, I mean, I I realized that this is a little bit like James Bond's where Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. first one you encounter is your favorite version of that character. Yeah, I remember Um, that. For me... Spider-Man, in my head, sounds like the guy in that old cartoon from 81 and Ooh. from 1981 all the way through Spider-Man is Amazing Friends. I, li- I, li- I just really like that voice. And, mm-hmm. But the voice of Wolverine from that cartoon, the, from that universe, essentially, was not the one that stuck with me. Because the one that stuck with me was the one from the 92 animated series and he will forever sound like that to me. Oh yeah, totally. No, absolutely. Everybody's all like, like, and the thing is, that style of voice, even if the actor didn't continue to perform him in future epic, future X Men related content, all but he did, X-Men, he did, he he performed it in in that X Men arcade game. Oh, that was him. Game. I was just that I was, was literally about that was I, oh all the God. animated I, I, voices. Wow! Thank you for stopping me for being full of shit. Because I was just about to say that every performance is patterned after him, <laughs> <laughs> including the arcade game. Like, like yeah, you, know, you're, you may not. Yeah, yeah. Everybody in the X Men are in the not the arcade game, but but I love the arcade game. I'm talking about the fighting game <laughs> from 
And and that 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 was just wow. That was that was insane. Berserker garage. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a friend who goes protect the garage, and it sounds pretty convincing. But <laughs> I go I where I want to go. <laughs> I remember reading about Game. the X-Men cartoon. <laughs> I remember reading about that X-Men cartoon first in Wizard Magazine. Now, Wizard Magazine was notable for the fact that for the first time in my young life, I felt like I was not alone in liking this nonsense, honestly. I mean, fine, there were a couple of guys in school, including one of them who was related to the owners of Comic Quest. Fine, I guess he counts. But... <laughs> the fact that there was an actual publication dedicated to comic books legitimized it, the whole thing, like nobody's business, you know? And yeah. this was Wizard Magazine. And I literally still have this page that I tore out announcing the new X-Men cartoon because I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I have that page and somewhere. I will find it. And then, you <laughs> it know. was just great, you know? It's like wow! It's real! It's coming! It and and it's it's gonna have all the characters, and they're gonna look just like they do in the comics. I remember um, in, in in Wizard. I'm not sure. I think it might have been issue number twenty six. You're serious? And, you know the issue number? Um, I could be wrong, but anyway. Um, and I remember <laughs> when they announced because I had enjoyed the X Men animated series absolutely for sure, right? But then when they yeah. announced. The, when they announced the Spider-Man animated series, you know, right? That's what, yeah. That's that's when I was intensively just going excited. Pop quiz: Who did the theme song of that animated series? Spider-Man. Go. Ostensibly Aerosmith, but I I raised my eyebrow at that. <laughs> <laughs> I also raised my eyebrow, but it's a cool story, so I'm sticking with it. Cool story, bro. I remember not the actor who played uh, your favorite Spider-Man. It is Dan Gilvaton. Thank you. I did not know that. Uh, it popped off my head. You should play. You should play the video game Spider-Man: Colon Shattered Dimensions. That's the I one love that, that game. His voice yeah, is in there. Dan, yeah. Which he one plays, is he? Uh, he plays Spider-Man 2099. No way. Okay, I'm yeah. gonna play it again. I'm gonna play it again. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> I love that game. That was the first time I encountered the noir Spider-Man before Nicolas yeah. Cage played him in Into the Spider-Verse. And then Christopher like, Daniel Barnes, who plays 90s Spider-Man, is the one who plays Spider-Man noir. Okay, here's the funny thing about 90s Spider-Man. Why does he... Why, of all the versions of Peter Parker they could have chose, why the hell did they design him after Nicholas Hammond? For anyone keeping track, Nicholas Hammond was the physical... He was the first actor to play Peter Parker in a bunch of low-budget TV movies in the 70s. And yeah, it was really bad. Just go to YouTube if you want to laugh. And, <laughs> and, and, and he was also one of the kids in The Sound of Music. But by the <laughs> 90s, you know, everyone had forgotten about that 70s live-action Spider-Man. Why in the name of Zeus did they pattern... They're Peter Parker after him. He, that's not the way they were drawing him in the comics. I have no answers for you, my friend. <laughs> it's just a very odd choice. Why would you pattern his visual <clears throat> appearance on somebody who hadn't been in that role for like, you know, two decades? Was that, that deliberate? Point? Was that deliberate, Bob? Was it, did they really pattern it after? I mean, you're right. He does look a lot like Nicholas Hammond, but I'm not sure that was deliberate. You're saying it was an accident? Yeah, yeah like, the, like the radioactive spider that gave him his powers. I don't know. I guess, like, for me, Peter Parker looks the way he does, you know, in that 
80s cartoon or the way John Romita would draw him. That's what that's what Peter Parker looks like. That's what he's supposed to look like. Not to sound like a like a like 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 an ultra nerd like hardcore purist, but for me it's always Steve Ditko. So there you go. I wouldn't even accept <laughs> that. What I wouldn't choose the kid from the sound of music. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, let's get back to uh, uh, you know comic culture in general. Like right, Wizard, right. Because we're talking so, about Wizard, Wizard magazine. Stuff. Okay, my source was that guy who was related to the the owners of Comic Quest, or at least that's what he would tell us. Um, is he is, he's, is he like hmm? is he like that guy who tells you he has an uncle in Nintendo? <laughs> no, but here's the thing: I have a good story about that because. Um, I had gotten into comics in a big way. I couldn't afford them. But this classmate of mine would bring, like, every couple of weeks, he would bring the new books to school and we would all just take turns reading them. And so that's how I got to read things like the Infinity Gauntlet. That's the way I got to start the Infinity War and I had no idea how it went until 20 years later when I finally bought the damn thing. But it's also (laughs) how I got my hands on the single biggest story of my then young life which was the death of Superman. Mm. I had never seen, like even my, I'd never seen such mainstream interest in a comic book storyline in my life. And maybe it was a case of nothing else happening in the world at the time, which I highly doubt. But Mm. every newspaper, every TV news show, everybody had to weigh in on the death of Superman like it was the biggest thing ever. And yeah, I remember. Fans, I remember all that stuff. But 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 comic book fans, I'm sure, were just snickering. They're like, "Dude, do you know how many times Jean Grey has died at this point? It's ridiculous. Come on, well, Superman allow me back in pe- six months." But the, the, I guess the average person didn't know those things. <laughs> so it was a big deal, especially since this is Superman. You know, nothing can kill that guy except pieces of his home world and magic. But it's Superman. You know, you don't imagine <laughs> that don't he would forget, be killed. You, don't forget, you can also hurt him by breaking his heart. Oh, yeah, farm boy. <laughs> but it was, you know, even my parents were talking about it. So it was a big deal to me. So when that classmate said that he could help me get a copy for the princely sum of 120 pesos, I could have my very own copy, a collector's copy of Superman 75, the issue where he actually died. That issue had like a, a replica a facsimile newspaper of clipping of the Daily Planet of his death. It had an armband that you could mourn with in solidarity. Oh, I, I actually, I had it, that one. I, had, I, you want me? You want me to go go had, over there and pick it and, and and bring it out? It's okay. I believe you. I believe you. I, I, it had like stamps, <laughs> commemorative stamps. Um, I, I don't remember what else it had, but it all came in this really cool black bag with a bloody S on the front. So you really thought that you were, you really got this feeling. You were holding something important. You were holding a piece of history. So for 120 pesos, it was mine. And the worst thing is, I never got to open that fucking thing because somebody stole it before I got home from school. Wait, so you had, you had the armband and all that promotional stuff inside the I never opened it. I assume it was in there. Yes. Did you have? Because that's what I was promised. Wait, you did not buy two copies? I didn't have. You know how long it took me to save 120 pesos. <laughs> oh, see, but, I was an as a, as a true Chinaman. <laughs> oh, good. I was an God. Enter, I was an enterprising individual. I simply did uh, favors for people in 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 grade school. Yeah, in grade school. So there was a tinda, there was a tindahan. 
like maybe a, a short walk away from this, the, the school. Okay. And so I would just go walk over there and back and pick up stuff for people for a peso per trip. Right. And I just right. did that like, you know, 20 times a day, every day for. Wow. Set for seven days or eight days, I guess, and save enough money to do stuff. Mm. <laughs> well, now it's like you know. I oh, so I, I was, I was like, so you're too lazy to go get some chewing gum. All right, give me a buck, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll do it for you. <laughs> so honestly, I, I'm gonna put it out there, right? Um, Whoever stole my copy of Superman 75 from my binder <laughs> by from my binder next to my backpack on the stairs <laughs> while I was away for a few minutes I hope you are in severe pain right now I really do because you broke my heart I went home crying because I had waited <laughs> so long like you know you know how it is when you're a kid right when you want something it's the most important thing in the world that yeah, was know, my right? thing. And it was gone. I never even got to see it. I never got to open it. I was going to open it when I got home. To feel and the strong, to feel I, the I, strong I, naive, passionate desires of a child. Now, when I look at the Steam store and say, I want something, that two seconds later, I say, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that became one of the first instances where my parents, one of those instances where they actually came to the rescue of my nerdy pursuits because unbeknownst to me, what they did was they got in touch with, I don't know if they went through my classmate because I don't remember anymore, but they got in touch with his family who owned TommyQuest. And they actually arranged to get me, to get a replacement copy. And that's what they gave me for Christmas. Superman 75. And the thing was, by that time, remember how I got it for 120 pesos? The owner of Comic Quest, I think she charged them like maybe like three fifty or something or forty. I don't know. Oh god! Oh god. <laughs> no, because but that ninety ninety five pesos is just like insane, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, it turned out because it was like six hundred already by that point or seven hundred, and she told them I, that I'm giving you a discount because, to be perfectly honest, when Misha, when it was committed to him at one hundred twenty, it was already worth more than that. But because mm-hmm. my nephew had given his word. I let him have yeah. it for 120. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I never forgot that, and Mm-mm. I still have that comic book, and mm-hmm. I, I I love that book. I mean, it's a completely yeah. nonsensical story. I mean, even the writers were like, "Are we are we really doing this?" But it really stuck out, and it was became the first thing that I more or less followed over in the months that came after. I mean, I didn't get every issue, but any chance, any tidbit I could get about how Superman was coming back to life. You know, you know every you know, rumor. One of our, one of our, uh, one of our, 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 our people, one of the people who responded to us in the comments, uh, said that he'd like to hear us talk about Superman one of these days. So maybe we can do a tour of all of that in a future episode. Sure, that sounds like uh, fun. We could do that. Yeah. we can do that definitely. And I think uh, Death of Superman is interesting. Like you were talking about how it's a nonsensical story and. You know, I'm not particularly enamored of the Death of Superman story, but I don't really think of it too lowly either. So I think right. that's something that could, we could no, definitely. It's not, I don't. I don't think know, it's revisit. garbage. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think for, personally, I think it's just too long. <laughs> <laughs> the actual death like, or everything that came after? Everything that came before and after. It was like it was like six. It was like twelve issues worth of 
you know, and then Doomsday came to down and fucked some shit up. That's pretty much what happened. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happens. Like, like for like for 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 three months, four times a month, <laughs> right? And then, <laughs> but for, I, I didn't get it that way because I got it. You know, it was it was in the, the, end, in the yeah, you, got, you got it in the in the, tra- <laughs> in the trade, right, and all that stuff. No, I got yeah. the seven. My my brother got the trade. I got issue seventy five. That was, those were yeah, our Christmas yeah. gifts for the year. Yeah. So I got what I lost. He got the whole story. And you yeah. know it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> but you know the, the the death of Superman. You were saying mainstream media was paying attention to it, and I think that was a, a an interesting cultural inflection point for comics because it was coming at a time. Well, first of all, nobody really believed like the way the media talks about comics at the time was they were treated as not just unimportant funny books, but they were also treated in the same manner as comic strips in the newspaper, which is. A status quo that is unending, unalterable, where right, there are right. no real stakes, there are no real like consequences. There are ass- no consequences. Yeah, people assume that Superman, Superman will never, will never really suffer because there is no ending for Superman either. That he will just continue to adventure for the rest of eternity. And right. so, you know, the mainstream press really uh, bought into the hype of the idea that you know he would be dead. And the, what the context that they lacked was the idea that comic books had already begun conjuring up the notion of you know controversial events as a way of you know boosting, boosting sales, sales and right. and controversial also, events also as a way of of conjuring drama of making things seem more exciting than they actually are. It's like the twenty four effect, you know. Like in twenty four, I love that show, but a lot of that show is just like, and then suddenly. <laughs> A mountain lion appears. Yeah, a mountain lion appears. And that was suddenly, really bad. <laughs> yeah. I have suggested many other episodes today. Do not suggest an episode of 24 to me. Because if we did, I could really fucking get into it. <laughs> Three-point landing! But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's a different... It was a cultural inflection point. And it also came at a time when... I think you know this better than I do, which is when uh, comic books were beginning to be seen as a speculative item, as a commodity. As oh, a good God. Of, no kidding. As a cultural Absolutely. artifact that could be traded for, for, for greater value later. Absolutely. Because they was coming at a time where an entire generation or two that had grown up on comic books, because back in the day, people would read comic books, grow out of them, and move on. Right? And... Mm-hmm. You forgot something that had happened just like two, three years before Superman died. Mm-mm. Tim Burton's Batman came out. That's what transformed Batman from your daddy superhero to somebody who was freaking cool. Somebody who was he a badass. an icon, basically, at that he, point. It just made him. Adam West. Absolutely. And well, to be fair, even comic book fans were not enamored with the 1960s Batman, okay? Because that's not what mm-hmm. Batman was doing in the comics at the time. He yeah. had already moved on from the lighthearted books of the 40s and 50s and had gone back to somewhat being a detective. But the 60s show <laughs> reverted him back to the silliness and that lasted well into the 70s. But, <laughs> but it that, wasn't... That, that, always, that always amuses me because like, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right that, that, the, that the Adam West campy 1960s Batman was presenting an incarnation of the character that only existed 20 years prior. Which is yeah. amusing to me, which is amusing to me because it's just another reminder that Hollywood movies right. and, the, and, the, and the top of the mainstream tends to be and, and, and television tends to be slightly out of step 
to what the cultural developments are in the other medium. For example, now with the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the superhero genre on film and TV is entering its age of deconstruction. It's entering its age of irony. It's entering its age of uh, cultural criticism. And right. you know, I, I watch, I read all these writers, like writers across the media, who are like, "Well, you know, it's really challenging our assumptions about what superheroes are." Blah blah. blah. And I'm thinking, "Oh, look, comic book discourse from 1999." <laughs> <laughs> That's because people still just, tend to write these off as being for children, yeah, yeah. being silly, being yeah, inconsequential. Yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, I'm, I'm, not going- saying, I'm not saying that that discourse is invalid. I'm just saying is that what your observation about Batman speaks to a broader truth about about the relationship of one pop cultural medium to another niche more niche pop cultural medium. of course this was also before the age of um you know vertical integration <clears throat> you know like how mm. disney owns everything now so whatever they do yeah. in the film reflects in the comics and vice versa they can yeah. do that because they own everything so Mm-mm. back then, you know, these things were pretty much apart. So if you like the Batman show, maybe the comic fans would look down on you. If you like the comic books, the mainstream people would look down on you. You know, it, it was a weird, weird thing. But Batman 1989 from Tim Burton, Tim Burton, essentially everybody loved that. Everybody loved that show. And it was so, uh, that movie, and it was so influential. It, 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 it's what, inspired Batman the Animated Series. It's what got um, the X-Men show greenlit. It's what, it's what um, got talk about an X-Men movie series going after the cartoon was a hit. You know, it just snowballed from there. And it was incredible. It, it, it built a momentum that for some reason or other, Superman the movie did not capitalize on in 1979. Mm. I don't understand why. Because I honestly would have loved to have seen Christopher Reeve throw down with Michael Keaton's Batman. That would have been cool. But, you know, that train (laughs) has sailed. And for me, it was just a really great time to be into comic books. Because, you know, you had the cartoons, you had the, the comics. It was just, you had the trading cards. It was like everything fed Every other, every single part fed all the other parts. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I also think that comic books themselves, not just the movies and you know TV and all that stuff. Comic books themselves were at an interesting point. Now, most of us who talk about the history of comic books tend to like laugh at the at the, at the period that we grew up with, which is the late eighties all the way to late nineties. Um, but I because of the, the the fact that the this is an era filled with glut and excess where. Uh, too many, too many companies and too many publishers were trying to get into business, and there was just like too many new storylines and new characters being invented, hoping to make the next big success story. But at the same time, it's because of that that weird, crowded era that we have so many weird, interesting uh, curiosities and oddities. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure there is some columnist out there writing for Comic Book Resources or Bleeding Pool or Newsarama or whatever, who probably will say like, hey, remember when back in 1999, you know, Gru the Barbarian was a thing or the Mighty Magnor or... I love Gru. Come uh, on. Sergio Aragones can do no wrong. Yeah, no, I love him. I love him. But I'm saying is that, you know, they were publishing, you know, the American comic book industry was publishing so many books that there was an endless number of pages available to... To, to accommodate new ideas, which oh, wait, is actually he, the, 
Sorry, sorry, go another ahead. Another thing, another thing I like to talk about in the history of American comic books, which is the early 2000s, the post-bankruptcy era. Oh, that was horrible. Trash, trash, yeah, yeah trash that was pretty garbage. That was that was garbage. That was just garbage. I don't, I, I don't want to get into the dark. I don't want to get into. I don't want to get into the details of the crash. I feel like that's again another way, another thing you can talk about some other time. But after the crash, when Marvel went bankrupt and then started doing some ideas that were questionable, it was also a time that I think Bill Jemis came over and started taking over the company and started greenlighting just about any random ass idea in the hope. <laughs> And he could find some idea would that stick, would right. Yeah, exactly. Because because Marvel was desperate. Marvel was. Um, That's true. They were bankrupt. Yeah, they I were mean, bankrupt. they had they had to be bailed out by Toy Biz at one point. Considering yeah. they owned Toy Biz, that was kind of embarrassing. Yeah, and at that point, Marvel was operating at a loss. But Toy Biz was making so much money with the toys know, based toys. on the cartoons. Yeah, and based on their characters that they could afford to indulge the company in its experiments. And that's why we got <laughs> stuff like the Ultimate Universe. We got, uh, you know, weird random love comics that. like uh, uh, Deadline and, you know, all that stuff. Like, I, I still fondly remember that that period between 2002 to 2009 is a time when, you know, Marvel was just like, had a lot of big question mark <laughs> comics, but also a lot of... Um, <laughs> You know, interesting experiments that remain influential today. Um, something that um, I think that I started talking about earlier, but I kind of lost track of. Um, there, when I started talking about how comics were formerly something that people grew out of. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That man, if that came back in the 80s in a big way, especially in the late 80s and the early 90s, because the people who had discarded those things we're rediscovering them again because of the movies, because of the comic books that were, uh, because of the cartoons that were now popping up. So they wanted to buy back pieces of their childhoods. And that mm. is what drove prices up to ridiculous levels of key comic books. You wanted to get the first appearance of Wolverine? Fine. It's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars. You want the first appearance of Superman? It's half a million dollars. That kind of thing. Because... Again, nobody, I mean, outside of a very few, a select few, most people would read these things and then just, you know, forget about them like newspapers. They would just toss them in a pile. So even if they still had their old comic books, they would not be in any shape worth uh, preserving. So they would go to specialty stores. They would go to dealers looking for the books they grew up with, looking for the first appearances of their favorite characters who are now hot again because of movies, because of cartoons and trading cards. And that is what drove prices up to the point that Marvel, DC, all the other guys, they were putting out number ones every month. And it just got stupid because all of them, it became a war of attrition. Somebody puts out a hologram cover. The other guy's going to put out a die cut chromium cover. Somebody puts out a gatefold, you know, a gatefold cover. Somebody's going to put out some kind of um, I, I thought, lenticular effect, and I then they for started. A moment you were doing, uh, <laughs> uh, I thought for a moment you were doing the speech from Untouchables. Oh, I like you know. that one, but you have to sound like Sean <laughs> you know, Connery. He put, you know, he put, he pulls out a die cut. He pulls out a hollow foil. <laughs> <laughs> he pulls out a limited be- edition. You pull out a number zero issue. <laughs> That's you know, the speculators' way. <laughs> at the beginning, it was kind of cool to have a 
cover with a hologram of Wolverine on the front. But at mm. some point, you know, it got ridiculous when they'd put out like a Spider-Man with like nine different covers, all of them just in different shades of metallic ink. So it, it got ridiculous and it nearly destroyed the industry because people were hoarding the books in the hopes that they would be worth something someday. They didn't realize that the only reason that the old books were worth anything is precisely because they were so rare, not because they printed so many, and especially and not, not if not, everybody had one. Not just because the not like those old books became became valuable, not just because um, you know the characters were popular, but also because they were printed on material that wasn't designed to last because they came from an era. When American popular culture was treated as ephemeral and disposable, if you Absolutely. watched an episode of, of of television that night, you know there there were no there were no reruns. You know reruns wouldn't exist, and syndication wouldn't exist until like the seventies or eighties. Right. Um, you wanted, you know, you you read a magazine, you know, you it was on you to keep it and take care of it if you really wanted to be able to read it again, like you know, an hour later. Even the way the the fact that. You know, comic books were and, and and printed matter were treated as monthly installments of an ongoing product. You know, guaranteed right. that people saw those things as you read it, you put it away. It's just um... and also the paper quality was garbage. So you know, those things like <laughs> you know, like that's why there's the whole secondary market of like you know, um, plastic bags that are acid free. Like you can put your comic book in and the backing boards and all that stuff and the miler or whatever. You know, man, I'm, I'm not even keeping track anymore. Like all of that stuff, you know, existed because comic books would naturally disintegrate. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's why, that that that's precisely why, you know, growing up and being laughed at or ridiculed for reading these books and... 20, 30 years later, now these are characters that the entire world knows. These are characters that um, have appeared in so many forms across so many different kinds of media. And they're not, you're not going to be ostracized anymore if you whip out a comic book in school. And I never thought that that would be something that I would see. I mean, as, I mean at some point, you know, you learn not to react to people mocking you anymore. But I never could have foreseen the entire world giving a crap about these characters or these storylines. And so it's been something quite incredible to witness. The mainstream embracing of comic books and superheroes in general. I mean, not that that superheroes are the only comic book um, format available, the only genre, but they're certainly the most visible. And the fact that everybody knows who these characters are now is nothing less than incredible to me, honestly. Okay. Um, wow. That, that conversation was more animated than I thought it would be. We actually, to be perfectly honest, guys, we had planned on talking about our favorite comic book storylines. Um, I did not know we would be going down the rabbit hole of nostalgia as hard as we did. But that was actually kind of fun. Um, so tell you what, hit us up in the comments and let us know what your favorite comic book memories are. Whether it's a storyline, a favorite store, a favorite character, let us know. Because we really want to hear about it and, you know, maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode. 
Um, but until then, you know, it's still a crazy world. So everybody, please just look out for one another. And um, yeah, take care, guys. Until the next quarantine session, this has been Misha. This is Matthew. This was Three Point Landing. See you next time. Wait, I don't see anybody. What am I talking about? This episode of Three Point Landing was produced, recorded, and distributed under quarantine by Big Baby Studios. Follow us on Facebook at Three Point Landing PH.